Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Eric Spanberg, in for Mike Collins. Homeland meets Lost with a touch of The Walking Dead and The Terminator and a taste of Mad Max's post-apocalyptic flavor. That is how the publisher of The Year of the Locust describes the new spy thriller from author Terry Hayes. And that's only scratching the surface of his 787-page epic. From the White House to remotest Iran, with a climactic finale in Kazakhstan by way of time travel, the relentless pace and setbacks faced by our protagonist— a CIA spy named Kane, make Tom Cruise's Mission Impossible look like Sesame Street. As for Terry Hayes, the man behind all this delightful mayhem, becoming a best-selling author is his second act. In the 1980s, he was a highly successful screenwriter for two Mad Max sequels and others. Anti-entity, anyone? You think I don't know the law? Wasn't it me who wrote it? That, of course, is the voice of the late, great Tina Turner, who was a star of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one of Hayes' credits. His movie credits also include the Nicole Kidman thriller Dead Calm. Ten years ago, Terry Hayes published his first book, I Am Pilgrim. It focused on a spy chasing an obsessive, cruel extremist while overcoming staggering physical and mental anguish. It became a bestseller and prompted Janet Maslin to describe I Am Pilgrim in the New York Times as, quote, the most exciting desert island read of the season, end quote. Terry Hayes is headed to Charlotte today because of I Am Pilgrim. Charlotte was among the cities where the novel proved especially popular. With that in mind, Hayes will be signing copies of his Decade in the Works follow-up, Year of the Locust, tonight at Park Road Books. Terry Hayes, welcome to Charlotte Talks. Well, thank you very much, Eric. Thank you for having me on, and I'm looking forward to being in Charlotte in another few hours. Well, now, uh, according to your publisher, you expected your follow-up to I Am Pilgrim, the uh, the book that became The Year of the Locust, to come out in 2015, a year after that first novel. And then you got stuck twice. First, you got stuck trying to finish the book as envisioned. And in 2020, you got stuck literally in Portugal. And that, paradoxically, got things moving. So tell us what happened. Well, yeah, the... Um... I never said it would be published in 2015, Eric. That was the publishers who said that. <laughs> I mean, they're forever optimistic. Uh, but, you know, that, that's the business plan of a, of a lot of authors, bring out a book every year or two years. Um, my situation was somewhat different, uh, unfortunately. And uh, I, I've never really spoken about it before because it's a personal thing. But um, the uh, the fact of the matter is, since I've been in America, everybody's been asking me about it. I mean, not just you know people in the media, but lots of people that I meet at book signings mm -hmm. and other events. So you know, I decide well, they might as well hear the real story. But uh, it's not something that you know that you'd want to get into too much. But the fact of the matter is that. Um, 
I'd been a migrant child. I'd, I'd gone to Australia when I was five and uh, it was just mum, dad, me and my older brother, just the four of us. There were no grandparents there. We'd gone from England, a small little town just in the south of England. We'd gone to Australia. No grandparents, no aunts, no uncles, no you know nieces, cousins, nothing like that. So we lived there as a very tight family unit. And because it was quite confronting being in this alien environment mm -hmm. and my mother unfortunately was not a psychologically very well person and that made my childhood somewhat difficult and uh i took refuge in in reading well you know you're seven or eight mm -hmm. you go to the bookstore you go to the library and there's thousands of books so you come up with this idea well it can't be that hard can it i mean <laughs> look at all these books that have been written i, I, I mean <laughs> somebody did those why shouldn't i so i decided at a very early age to be a, a writer and um, because I loved storytelling and because I had a I guess a um, an emotional you know push towards it to escape you know certain things and um, anyway I went into journalism and became a foreign correspondent in, in New York and then I went into the movies and then I wrote I Am Pilgrim and uh, that had been my lifelong dream. A, a well-received, big-selling novel. And uh, I set off on that journey to do that. Well, 200 pages in, Eric, um, too far in to abandon it, mm -hmm. and not far enough to see the end. My brother uh, came and visited me and told me he had cancer. And um, he was uh, 59. And I, I know enough about medical science to know how serious that was. And I asked him, that type of cancer. And I asked him how long the doctors had given him. And they said six months to a year. And unfortunately they were right down the low end. Mm -hmm. So I lost my brother. Uh, about four or five months later, it's hard to remember the exact time frame, but uh, four or five months later, I had some, uh, an event that I wouldn't wish on anybody. I had to stand in the corridor of a hospital in Sydney. My father, who's quite elderly, um, was starting to undergo organ failure um, and uh, the doctors told me it was a lot of pain and there was no way back. So I had to authorize them to turn off the life support. And so I lost dad, so happened dad. And I lost him. Six months later, my mother died. And so within the space of a year, I lost the three members of my family who had known all along about this dream of writing a halfway decent novel. I didn't know if it was halfway decent. Most of the time I thought it was probably terrible, but I kept going. And in the midst of all of this, I had no choice. I got up every morning and I dug ditch and I wrote another 500 pages. I finished the book and um, publisher in England called me and said, you know, it's gonna be huge. It's gonna be a really big selling book. This is really quite something. I said, oh yeah talked to him for a while and he said to me you don't uh, you don't sound very happy I said oh, no I'm happy believe me I'm happy but the three people who should be here to share this are no longer with us so very mixed emotions Eric uh, I mean it was a very difficult time I, I'd never had the opportunity to mourn uh, my family and of course it was brought home to me in, in a very eloquent fashion the, the magnitude of that loss you know now you know i i have led a blessed life and and people die and that but 
I, it was unfortunate that it happened during the midst of writing and in such quick succession. So anyway, when I finished Pilgrim, I had to take quite an amount of time to think about things. And uh, one of the things I thought about was my own childhood. Um, you know, and, and the difficulties of that. And my wife and I had had four children all under the age of six. So we had them boom, 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 boom. And um, I looked at the kids and uh, I thought a lot about my own upbringing and the you know, difficulties associated with that. And I thought to myself, you know, I can always write another book. I'll never get this time again. I'm going to be the best dad that I'm capable of. Of course, you know, all of us who have children know that whatever you do, it's never good enough, is it? They always blame me. They blame parents all the time. It's a generational thing. Every generation blames their parents. But I thought I'm going to, I'm going to give them everything that I can, not materially, but in every other way. So I uh, never missed a cricket match. I never missed a training session. I never missed a horse riding lesson. I never missed a production of Aladdin. I saw 10,000 productions of Aladdin. <laughs> and uh, even me mentioning the word now, I can feel the sweat start to break out. <laughs> I could, I'm starting to go in, 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 into some sort of terrible crisis, uh, but I've watched every one of them. Well, it's, and, it's, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned family and your focus on family, because as much as Year of the Locust is this slam bang thriller, uh, ultimately, I think it is about family and it's about uh, particularly yeah. parents and children. Uh, absolutely. A absolutely. You know, I, I, I've been really lucky. You know, I've done, I've lived the life that I wanted to live. And, you know, and I, I'm very proud of the work that I did as a journalist. I, I think some of the movies I made stand up pretty well. And the two books, I, I think, are great. The thing I'm most proud of is that I think I was a good dad. Mm -hmm. And I put that into Locust. Mm -hmm. He is he's a good man. Cain does goes into terrible places, very dark places. But at the end of the day, he is a very good man. And he would lay his life down for his kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, what greater love can there be than that? And that, that was my theory. And uh, I didn't lay my life down, but I, I took a lot longer to write a book. And that seemed to me to be a small price to pay. So uh, I don't regret it for a minute. I don't. The, the, the publishers do, but I don't. <laughs> and the second half of my question uh, about Portugal, uh, you went to Portugal, you were looking at real estate, I think. And uh, that was in March of 2020. The whole world shuts down. At the time, you're living in Australia. You can't go home for two years, and that really helps you find the time and the inspiration to unlock what became Year of the Locust. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was in a miserable part of the book, and I was in a miserable part of my life. <laughs> I couldn't go back to Australia, and the family could not leave Australia. Australia has some of the strictest lockdowns in the world, and, and I support that. It, it was personally difficult, but... I think that the Australian government saved a lot of lives. And uh, we were fortunate that it was an, it's an island nation, a relative of 27 million people. So it was all you know, able to be implemented. But personally, it was, it was difficult because I don't speak Portuguese. I did not know a person in the country. 
I slept for a long period of that on an air mattress on the floor. I had a desk and uh, from Ikea and a most uncomfortable, don't ever buy a desk chair from Ikea. That's, that's my advice to <laughs> everybody in the world. That's what you learned. They are the, mo- <laughs> they are the most uncomfortable things you can find. That, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure that, that you know, I'm going to have to have spinal surgery after having sat in that for God knows how long. But yeah, I, I plowed on uh, and finished the book. Uh, frankly, there was nothing else to do, but it, it's hard to write when you're in a constant state of depression. Um, so I'd have to get up in the morning and I'd say to my wife, it can't go on much longer. It can't go on yeah. much longer, but of course it did. Um, but then she organised, God bless her, to send a lot of furniture from a house that we had in New Zealand, uh, which they couldn't go to, but she organised some people to pack it up and uh, send it to me in in Portugal. And uh, that was a great thing, except that the Maersk freighter with my furniture on board caught on fire off of Singapore. And how many freighters- This is like one of your novels. (laughs) It is, honestly, Eric, how often do freighters catch on fire? I I mean, this is not like, uh, happens five or six times a day. This is a very modern freighter. Personally, I think the crew were uh, enjoying um, a few beers when the engine room went up. And that, so um, I didn't know whether our, our, container had survived or not it took weeks and weeks and weeks to find out then it had to be it did survive then it had to be put onto another boat then it went up to Rotterdam because that was the only place and that's nowhere near Portugal uh and then it had to come down to Portugal I almost cried when I saw the furniture I thought this thing should have frequent fly miles this is like or frequent sea miles it's been everywhere in the world it survived all of this stuff and anyway so it got there (laughs) So, as you can see, Terry Hayes likes to tell a story, and we're going to have him tell a few more stories about his new book, The Year of the Locust, and welcome him to Charlotte tonight at Park Road Books. Stay with us right here on Charlotte Talks. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaOfSouthCharlotte.com. Back on Charlotte Talks, I'm Eric Spanberg in for Mike Collins, and my guest today is Terry Hayes. He is a screenwriter and novelist whose new book, The Year of the Locust, came out this week. Terry will be reading from and signing his book tonight at Park Road Books. Well, before we go any farther, uh, Terry, uh, I want to mention the new novel is narrated by this CIA character I mentioned. Uh, His name is, he's known as Kane. And he's sent to Iran by the agency to see an informant who has demanded $25 million in exchange for, for providing information about a planned terrorist attack. So Kane sneaks into Iran only to find his informant crucified. He can see the body hanging in a, a little village uh, that he is going to. And soon Kane is captured by a man who is known as Al Tundra, who uh, then, to make sure that Kane will not escape, shoots him in the foot. So if you would, would you please read for us what happens next? Okay. This is going to be confronting. I haven't read this since I wrote it. I hope it's any good. Off we go. (laughs) Um, 
I removed the last of the bandage and stretched out my foot and the rich smell of blood attracted the flies. Within seconds, not just the wound, but my entire foot was a seething, shifting black mass of them. I lay back and tried not to think too much about it. The flies would lay their eggs in the wound and within a short time they would hatch into larvae, maggots in other words. In order to survive, the white worms would eat the damaged flesh and in a quirk of nature, enzymes produced by their digestion would disinfect the wound. I kept my eyes averted, trying to ignore the crawling sensation over my foot and not think about worms burrowing into my body. When I heard the Islamic prayer coming to its end, I swept the flies away and started to rebandage the wound. I had just finished when the three horsemen, Altundra's lieutenants, loomed over me. They were older than their comrades, their skin, the texture and colour of tanned leather and were clearly veterans of God knows how many wars. They forced me to hop and limp to the most rugged of the four by four vehicles, the pickup equipped with the largest supplementary tanks, which I had already identified as the best vehicle to try to commandeer and escape. Moments after arriving at its tailgate, however, I learned that Altundra and his team had come well prepared. The leader of my escort ripped a tarpaulin off the vehicle's flatbed, revealing a large cage made of heavy gauge steel mesh. The escort leader loosened two large bolts, swung the cage door open and in Arabic ordered me inside. Without any alternative, I bent my head, climbed into the mobile cell and sat on the floor, thankful at least to take the weight off my foot. The man flicked away his cigarette, slipped the bolts back into place and padlocked them. Hand, he said, motioning for me to put my right hand through the mesh. One of the other guards gave him a pair of handcuffs and he secured my wrist to the steel frame so that I was not only locked inside a cage, I was also virtually immobilized. The idea of taking a vehicle, as ill-formed as it may have been, vanished, and any hope of escape appeared to have died with it. That's a bad day at the office. That's a bad day at the office, but it's not as badly written as I thought it might be. So no, I no, I for me. (laughs) I didn't mean your writing. I meant I meant (laughs) I meant Kane. So before we go. The writing's great. Before we go, (laughs) before we go any further into the, and I I think it demonstrates uh, how how just compulsively readable these stories that you tell are, because as I mentioned, it's almost 800 pages and you fly through it. But before we go any further into the book and the twists and turns, I want to know how much veracity is there to the disinfectant method that Cain employed in the uh, passage that you just read? Oh, that's absolutely true. I mean, for, 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 for everybody in Charlotte and nearby areas, um, if you ever need to disinfect a wound and there's a long line of emergency, well, just get some larvae and it'll disinfect it for you. It was, you know, in some countries I've been to, I'm sure it's still used. <laughs> the, the medical system, it's not that advanced, but... It was a very popular method in uh, like the 16th and 17th centuries for the reasons described there. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it will work. Well, I I don't think it will work if you're having open heart surgery, but I think for for a lot of wounds, yes. And uh, it's real dry gulch medicine, you know, but hey, he's got no choice. Uh, They just shot him in the foot and they're not taking him, you know, whether he's got medical insurance or not, they're not taking him down the hospital. 
Well, and that leads to a question that I would assume that you hear all the time, but uh, nonetheless, I feel compelled to ask it, which is, what kind of research do you do? How much of these novels are sort of dreamed up in your head, and how much are, are things that you either uh, experienced or learned about or read about or interviewed people about? Yeah, Eric, it, it, look, I, I got a theory. Every writer in the world's got a theory, and I'm sure all of us are wrong. But my theory, my theory is this, writing these big, epic, globe-trotting spy thrillers, with hopefully with some literary value to them, you've got to tell a million small truths to get the reader to believe the one big lie. The one big lie is that this guy called Kane is a denied access area spy, and he really has crossed the border into Iran. I want you to believe that. In order to get you to believe that, I got to tell you about disinfecting wounds with, you know, fly larvae, or I've got to tell you how many rounds there are in a Walter P-13 handgun. I got to tell you what it's like in Baku and Azerbaijan. So my kids say, God bless them. My kids say, don't ever play Trivial Pursuit with him. Don't. <laughs> he either gets up late at night and studies the answers or he's got a really good memory. Well, I do not get up and study the answers, although I have thought of it. Um, but no, that would be cheating. Um, I'm lucky. I've got a good memory and, and I read a lot. I read a real lot, not just books. I, I, I read newspapers voraciously. And I'm always looking for strange things that people may not know, but may be interested in and that, that what you asked me to read there is a perfect example of that uh, I knew of that I, I knew that that had been used you know centuries ago and so somewhere out of what my wife calls my overall imagination it emerges and I think oh this would be fun now all I've got to do is have somebody shoot him well they shoot him through the foot that's what ISIS did on the battlefield they didn't have handcuffs. They didn't have zip ties. That, they didn't want you to escape. They shot you through the foot. So you could still escape, but you had to hop. And the theory was that you wouldn't get very far hopping in the desert. So, so it, it's, a, it's a compendium of things, uh, of what I know, what I've read, and what I research, what I find. People I talk to, interesting facts that I find when I'm reading about or researching Baku in Azerbaijan or Baikonur Cosmodrome, the, the great Soviet or Russian space centre. Um, so, you know, the trick is to try to keep it interesting. That's the voice of Terry Hayes. He is the author of the new book, The Year of the Locust. It's the follow-up to I Am Pilgrim, and he will be at Park Road Books in Charlotte tonight. As you're talking about uh, reading and having the memory, I'm curious because these are globetrotting books, uh, do you feel compelled to go to many of these places? Have you been to many of these places, or does that even matter? Um, I've been to a lot of them. Uh, in Iron Pilgrim, a lot of it was set in Saudi Arabia, and I draw the line there. Um, th there's a pretty harrowing beheading in I Am Pilgrim, um, and that's true. Not so long ago, they managed to execute 80 people at once. Um, the account of that beheading in, in, in public beheading in uh, Saudi was drawn from an account written by two Irish guys who were working in the oil industry. 
and they went and witnessed it down in the square at Jeddah. Why you would do that is beyond me. But anyway, they did. And then one of them wrote about it. That was enough for me, Eric. Uh, you know, it's one thing to execute people. It's another to humiliate them and to do it publicly. I thought in a way that the world had left that behind, but apparently not. Iran is the setting for much of Locust. Uh, I ain't going there. Um, you know, plenty of Westerners have been um, seized in Iran on trumped-up spying charges, and that doesn't help that you know they're trumped-up. You're still in a cell in Iran for God knows how many years. So, no, I, you know, I like what I do. I have enormous respect. For, for, for the work that I do, as I do for all writers, but it's not worth losing your life for, I can promise you that. So, so but many of the others, I spent quite a long amount of time in the Middle East and, uh, of course, all through Europe. And I've, my wife is American. I've lived in America for often on many times. Uh, and I've lived in many countries around the world because, uh, as I mentioned, I was a migrant kid. I don't belong anywhere, you know, so I'm always up for going and renting someplace and my wife's saying, what? Why are we living here? Uh, but it, it turns out to be interesting, you know. You belong everywhere. Uh, so uh, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, these two novels are, they have some similarities in that your protagonist is a CIA spy in each one, but there it's not a sequel. They're separate characters. They're separate, uh, you know, stories. Uh, but that was a long way of me getting to, have you always been interested in, in spy craft? Was that always something that you hoped to explore at some point? Yeah. Yeah. When, when I was, um, when I was 21, the, uh, which is a few years ago now, uh, the, um, uh, the newspaper group I worked for in Australia uh, decided that uh, I should become a foreign correspondent in New York for them. And I, I think to this day I remain the youngest foreign correspondent ever sent by an Australian newspaper. Well, it was great, Eric, a wonderful opportunity. Uh, you know, for, from the journalist and professional point of view. But the best thing about it was they gave you your credit card. So you're 21, living on the Upper West Side in New York, opposite the Dakota where John Lennon had lived. And uh, I had a company credit card. So obviously I knew the company was doomed. Uh, I mean, financially doomed. Uh, and they, they were that silly. So I went there and uh, I was asked to, by one of the, the best newspaper in the group and a brilliant journalist who was the editor of it to write 10,000 words on Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War and how the CIA had manipulated us to join that adventure. So I spoke to a lot of people in the intelligence community, met some very, very brave people who, who did not believe that the CIA was fulfilling its real mission. It was interfering in too many things. So that showed me that sort of interesting area where politics meets dishonesty, meets the intelligence community. And a lot of people got swept up in those massive wheels of history and crushed in, you know, in the jungle in Vietnam. So I was, I was interested, I always remained interested. 
And they were books that I liked reading. Uh, I mean, I loved reading Day of the Jackal. I, I loved reading all the Jean Le Carre books. So, so it all came together. And when I decided to, that I'd had enough of Hollywood and nobody deserved to live like that, no matter how much money you might make, I thought, I know what sort of book I want to write. I want to write a book that I want to read. So that's what I did. And I was fortunate enough to find a lot of fellow travellers, you know, people who thought, oh, you know, this is okay, and uh, and spoke well of it. So did you- out of sort of nowhere, I ended up with an international bestseller. Thank you to the public. Thank you very much. You saved my, my you saved my life. You know. By, by the way, were you surprised when you, I, I don't know if they told you that uh, part of the reason you're coming here is because I Am Pilgrim did especially w- well here. Did, you know, just any thoughts on that? Was it just kind of like, where in the world is Charlotte, North Carolina? Or what were your thoughts? Oh, oh no, no. I knew, I knew about Charlotte and uh, I was told that you know, about that. And uh, clearly it's populated by incredibly intelligent people. Um, so I was delighted when they said, and you're going to Charlotte. I thought, well, this is good. This is good. I'm going to have a lot in common with these people or we're all stupid together. I'm not sure which, but but, but no, it, it was, uh, yes, it was pointed out to me. And I, I, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful um, that that should be the case. Um, the book also sold remarkably well, sold 500,000 copies in Holland. Now, wow. why... <laughs> And there's only 17 million people in Holland. So when you take out the kids, a lot of people have read it. So there's Charlotte and there's Holland. (laughs) You've got them all. Yeah, I mean, I'm covering the waterfront here. There's there's no doubt. What the relationship between those two things is, I do not know. I assume that there is some brilliant booksellers in Charlotte. That's all I can tell you. Because at the end of the day, people go into bookshops and they frequently say to the staff, can you recommend anything? And that certainly happened in Holland. I'm assuming it happened in Charlotte. And uh, I'll be interested in another few hours to find out the truth of that. They they might say, "Oh no, we we discounted it. We we it, it was on a one dollar special." I'll say, "Oh okay." <laughs> I'm curious when you you were speaking earlier about uh, you wrote that long story when you were a journalist about uh, how Australia was pulled into the Vietnam War. When you went to write I Am Pilgrim, did you still have contacts who had been in the intelligence world or did you find new ones? In other words, how much uh, firsthand knowledge do you seek as you're working on that book and now this one? Well, I, I, I had to meet new, new people. Uh, a lot of the people I knew uh, had written books themselves, which in some cases had been, you know, adopted, you know, or passed through the CIA, which is what you have to do. But there were a number of people who didn't uh, do that. And then there was um, a a film director called Paul Greengrass wrote a book about a British intelligence operative who'd gone to live in Australia and he knew where a lot of bodies were buried. And so Paul uh, ended up, and directing one of the Bourne movies and uh, a group of other movies. Great guy, great guy. And he and I became friends. And uh, that's so I read his work and and spoke to him about it. Uh, you know, we had a commonality. And that's so 
yeah, you know, I think most people think that uh, agencies like the CIA or, you know, MI6 or um, that all of these are monolithic organisations where everybody's got their shoulder to the wheel and we're all working in the same direction. Well, of course, it's not true. Mm. There, there, there's all these disparate groups who think the other group are complete maniacs uh, and, and have to be stopped at any price. Um, so there's a lot of discord, like there is within any organisation, any large organisation. So, yeah, it was, uh, it, it, I, I managed to tap into quite a number of people and, you know, the books are the result of that. We will pick up that thread and talk more about the new novel, The Year of the Locust. The Year of the Locust, if I can spit it out. The Year of the Locust with author Terry Hayes, who is headed to Charlotte to Park Road Books tonight. Stay with us right here on Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaOfSouthCharlotte.com. Back on Charlotte Talks, I'm Eric Spanberg. In for Mike Collins, we're continuing our conversation with Terry Hayes. He is a screenwriter and novelist whose new book, The Year of the Locust, came out this week. Terry will be reading from and signing his book tonight at Park Road Books. Terry, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned earlier, uh, I Am Pilgrim is uh, over 600 pages, uh, and I uh, noted that uh, Year of the Locust is close to 800 pages. They read much more briskly than that. But I am curious in a publishing world where people are concerned about attention spans and you see a lot of books uh, on the smaller side. Did you have any pushback on writing to this length from your publishers or editors or anybody else? No, no. They, <laughs> they, I think the trick, Eric, is, you know, M Mark Twain once uh, read the, uh, the the seminal work of, of, of the Mormons, uh, they're, they're basically their Bible. And uh, after he finished it, somebody asked him what it was like, and he said, well, it's chloroform in print. And uh, <laughs> that is to be avoided at all costs, in my, in, in, in my view. You don't <laughs> want to write chloroform in print, no. Uh, so it wasn't the length that, that worried me or the publishers or even my editors. Of course, you know, they're always looking to make things shorter, sharper, better. Thank God. But no, it, the, the, the guiding principle was, is it boring? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I write, I, I write every paragraph. Of, and I say at the end of it, I, I say, do I want to read the next one? Do I want to read the next paragraph? I get to the end of the page. I think, do I want to turn that page? Mm -hmm. Do I want to go on to the next chapter? Yeah, my dream is that, sorry but people are in bed of a nine mm -hmm. and it's you know time to go to sleep and they stay up to four in the morning yeah. because they think oh just one more page just one more chapter so that was the, the really the guiding principle was um can we write to that length and <clears throat> and keep it lively keep it interesting uh the judgment was that i could and um you know i've read I'm sure you have too, books of 100 pages that felt like they were 10,000. I've, I've read... Or a form in print, you might say. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I, I, I remember when, when I was much younger reading Shogun by James Clavell, which is nearly mm -hmm. a thousand pages. It felt like 50 pages. Mm -hmm. And if, if James Clavell had told me that we had to keep going and read another thousand pages, I would have been as happy as anything. So that's... Yeah, Lonesome Dove was trip. too short. Lonesome Dove was too short, for example. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, uh, and this is almost this is a terrible question in a way to ask because you just mentioned that you really did not enjoy Hollywood, even though uh, the compensation was pretty good. But I'm going to play a Hollywood agent here for a moment. Uh, any sequels planned for either of these first two novels? Um, yeah, um, I've been contracted to write Pilgrim Two. I have a really terrific story. Uh, I'm sick to death of chasing terrorists. I, I, I've done my bit for terrorists. I've done my bit for smallpox. I've done my bit for leading edge technology in the year of the locust. And I'm going into a taking Pilgrim. I don't even know his real name. So if anybody can let me know, I'd be very happy because- I'll have to tell you off air. I don't want to let the secret out. I'll tell you. Right, right. exactly. Because he's got so many names and I get a bit lost in it all. But, you know, he's a spy. I, I'm going to a very interesting area with him. I'm really jazzed about it. I'm looking forward to that. Um, as far as movie versions of both books, I, Pilgrim will be made as a movie. It, uh, I, I've been through- four administrations at MGM. Each of them had told me what a brilliant book it is and they are definitely going to make it. But then they all get fired and then we, we get a new group in. So um, it, it's it's Hollywood. It's mm -hmm. tough, you know. You're talking about big budgets, very few movie stars, very few good directors. I the, It did come very close to being made and... Uh, Unfortunately for him, for the then administration of MGM, I had a, some say so over certain aspects of it. They told me who the director was, and I, I said, That is the most stupid idea I've ever heard. That guy couldn't direct traffic, let alone something that I feel very close to. The quickest way to kill the franchise, Eric is to make a bad movie. I'd rather it wasn't made at all. So I, the rights come back to me in another eight months or so, and I have had interest from some filmmakers I, I really respect, and I think it will be made, and I think it will be made very, very well. As far as Locust is concerned, well, it's only just out this week, and Hollywood is not, you know, thick with people who read books. Uh, and Big books probably take them a few years. Uh, they're good at colouring in books, some of them, but reading them, that's a bit different. Uh, and that's so we have to wait and see. But I think it's very cinematic. I, I think it will, it will find a, a life in a filmed version, yeah. When you have, when you have a, a book like this one that you spent 10 years uh, in various iterations on, uh, now it's out, you're going to be speaking to your readers uh this is all happy stuff i would think how long do you need to kind of decompress from all that before you think about what you will write next and what you want to write next i started thinking about it the day that i wrote the end on on locust okay. you know uh, 
I don't mean to drop names here, but I, I made some miniseries in Australia that were highly successful. And um, some of them went around the world and one of them uh, featured Nicole Kidman before I, I did Dead Calm and that launched her international movie career. But before that, I'd made some miniseries with her and they were made for Rupert Murdoch. Uh, he owned the TV network. So he was kind enough to take me to dinner a few times and talk to me about things. He told me an interesting thing. I, I was asking about his own success, you know. Yeah, I have mixed feelings, you know, mm -hmm. being a, a, in the media myself for so many years, but he is an interesting man and obviously highly successful. I asked him uh, stuff about, you know, the, the formative things in his life and that. And he said to me, listen, Terry, he said, there's a very important aspect to when you're, you know, going out there and doing things that I've attempted to do, and that is never look back. Mm -hmm. Never look back. You can spend your whole life looking back and thinking I should have, could have, would have. He said, just look forward. And I think that sums up my attitude. Uh, Pilgrim, I'm immensely proud of. Similarly with, with Locust, I did the best job I could. I don't know if it's good enough, but I did the best I could. It's over. I'm looking forward. I'm, I've got to write Pilgrim 2, and then I've got another book I want to write, and then I want to write a, a book about how to tell stories. And it's going to be, it's, I've got a title for it, Interviews with the Madman. And it's an oral history of me interviewing myself, because I tell you what, if I'm not a madman, I don't want to meet somebody who is. Um, so I'm always looking forward, looking forward. What's the next? Where, where, you know, where can we go next? Where can we live next? And that, and uh, what can I write next? Um, yeah, so it, it's not decompression. It's a constant state of compression. <laughs> That, uh, th that voice, that madman you're listening to is Terry Hayes. His new book is The Year of the Locust, and he is in Charlotte tonight uh, to meet readers and discuss the book. You said in a recent interview that Tolstoy's Anna Karenina is the best book you've ever read, and you said that one of the things that struck you is that it had elements of intrigue and thrills. Uh, I don't know if it had the uh, – I know it did not have the part about curing the um, – the the foot shot the, the shot in the foot but yeah. nonetheless it did have some thrills uh but but your point was that you could deliver those ki that kind of intrigue in a literary format so i'm curious does a work of that stature inspire you or intimidate you when you sit down to write yeah yeah i i think everybody who writes we see one of the problems with writing is you're not just competing against your generation or competing against or being judged by your peers you know i i, I mean there's tom clancy there's john grisham there's jk rowling well that's bad enough but we've also got hemingway we've got salinger we've got tolstoy we've got the bible we've got everything that forms our culture and so when somebody walks into a bookstore and sees all oh, the year of the locust it's haze you know okay but i'm not far from hemingway if they walk <laughs> along they'll see hemingway now they're gonna say well should i read for whom the bell tolls and he did win the pulitzer prize mm -hmm. and I, I i'm not sure whether he won the nobel or not but uh, or, and this haze guy well, he, he's probably really shallow and stupid. I think I'll read the Hemingway. 
And so you're competing against all these people, but that's also when you're sitting down to write and it's easy to become intimidated. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I say to myself is, yeah, yeah, they could write. Boy, could they write. Some of them were great storytellers, but they don't have my story. Mm-hmm. This is my story. And if I work hard enough, the story might surpass my inadequacies as a writer. Mm-hmm. And that, so I, I, yeah, I, I, I now my colours to the mast of telling a good story and hope that the readers get swept along and ignore the bad writing parts <laughs> of it. Although the stuff of shooting being shot in the foot was, it was all right. It was okay. <laughs> it got my attention. <laughs> Uh, tell me a little bit about your writing process. Uh, you mentioned you had all kinds of family tragedy going on that made this a much longer experience. So that's obviously not the writing part. So when you get to your next book, I guess the Pilgrim sequel, do yeah. you think it will go faster than uh, the gap between Pilgrim and Locust? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, firstly, I want to be alive to see it published. That'd be that, that that that's a step in the right direction. Secondly, the publishers have imposed some very onerous financial penalties if I don't deliver reasonably on time. Not nice people, the publishers. They 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 appear to be, but believe me, they're not. Um, and that and you know, every book's different. Every movie screenplay's different. Every piece of journalism's different. You run into unanticipated problems, but then on other occasions, you fly through things. Um, so yeah, I I believe it will will take a couple of years. I'm in the fortunate position of having a story that that is very rich, very fertile for me to explore in the writing, and you know I I'm a bit more confident. You know, uh, the success of Pilgrim was a difficult thing because apart from all the other issues, it was, well, can I do it again? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you, you you sort of, you end up going down a rabbit hole and you're not sure you can ever find your way out. But now I figure, yeah, yeah, well, we'll go down the rabbit hole and mm-hmm. somebody will send a little fox terrier down to rescue me if, if I can't get out, you know, it'll be fine. So, so yeah, I'm in a different frame of mind I, I, and, and, that, and I'm looking forward to it very much. And uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful. Uh, I may not be accurate, but I'm hopeful. You, you, as you probably know, uh, there are some novelists who will not read books in the genre that they're working in or the setting or whatever it is that they're trying to focus on. They don't want to be influenced. Do you follow uh, similar guidelines when you're at work? No, no, I read everything. I'll steal from anybody. Uh, (laughs) Who do you like stealing from the most? (laughs) (laughs) Rock songs. (laughs) <laughs> so, songs of my childhood, Bruce Springsteen, oh, not my childhood, but when I was a young man, but Dylan Springsteen, Leonard Cohen, brilliant work being done, The Doors, uh, brilliant work being done in, in the lyrics. And, and, you know, and, and today, I just am not as familiar with, with, with that music as I was. But, hey, listen, if I could ever write a line like a hard rain's going to fall, 
and some of the great Dylan lines, the answer's blowing in the wind, I'll be a very, very happy man. And Pilgrim starts with the first lines in Pilgrim. Uh, there are places I'll remember all my life. That's a line from a Beatles song. The last line in it, in that book is he is risen, he is risen, quote from the Bible, because it's a, to me it's a resurrection story. The last lines in, in Locust, Riders on the Storm, that's all we are and can ever hope to be, Riders on the Storm. He's been to hell and back. He's realised that the universe is an uncaring, unjust place. You ride it like a tsunami. And that's, of course, from The Doors. That was Jim Morrison, you know. And that. so, yeah, I... I look for inspiration there. I don't really steal ideas from other writers because they'll all go and have lawyers and <laughs> make my life hell. Uh, and that. So, but yeah, I get inspired by it. And, and often I go back and, and read books that I love. And I, I think to myself, you can do better, you know, Terry. You can do better. Uh, I mean, somebody, this, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien, he was digging ditch for years and the Lord of the Rings came out of it and you can do better too. You may not be as good as him, but you could be better than you than what's on the page at the moment. So chuck it out and rewrite it. As we come into our, our, our final moments, uh, I wanted to ask you, now that you're on tour, uh, do you what do you enjoy about meeting readers? Their questions mostly. Because when you're being interviewed, you know, by, especially by print journalists, that 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 they're looking for an angle, uh, you know, which I understand. I used to do it myself. They're looking for the lead paragraph. They're looking for something interesting. Where when you meet the readers, uh, either you know, uh, when you're sitting there chatting to them because they want a book signed, or when, at a public event if they ask questions, they're much closer to the bone. Um, you know, the question I get asked most frequently probably is, you know what is one piece of advice you would give to to somebody who, who wants to write? It's really simple. Eat well, don't drink alcohol, don't smoke cigarettes, and make sure you exercise. This is a sedentary job, and you are going to die if you're as stupid as I am. We'll have to let that be the last words of inspiration. That is author Terry Hayes. His new book is The Year of the Locust, and he is here tonight at Park Road Books. Terry Hayes, thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for having me on. For Mike Collins, I'm Eric Spanberg. Thanks for listening to Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Celebrating 25 years on the air, Charlotte Talks with Mike Collins is a production of 90.7 WFAE. Support for Charlotte Talks comes from Mazda of South Charlotte. Our executive producer is Wendy Herkey. The senior producers are Gabe Altieri and Sarah D'Elia. Our engineer is Joby Sprinkle. For more information about Charlotte Talks, to listen to past episodes, or subscribe to the podcast, visit wfae.org slash charlottetalks. Additional support for WFAE programming comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at Mazda of South Charlotte dot com.